Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses your stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. This episode of Right Lane is sponsored by the Scripps Howard Awards. The Scripps Howard Foundation and Right Lane are collaborating to spotlight some of the best journalism of 2019. The awards show will be April 16th in Cincinnati. In the weeks ahead, we'll talk with some of the Scripps winners on this podcast. Today's topic, journalism values. We're here at the Pointer Institute, which is just about a mile from our offices, and we're squatting today and getting a chance to catch up with some of the judges. And first up is Peter Copeland. Um, He's been in town helping with the uh, Scripps Howard Awards. Peter is the author of a new book, Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter. He's been a journalist and author for almost 40 years and is a former editor and general manager of Scripps Howard News Service. So first, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, Lane. So in your book, you write about your life as a journalist, and obviously you talk about how much has changed over the course of your career. But you also talk about values that don't change, that we must always embrace and nurture. And that's what we wanted to focus on here. So the pace of the news, as you write, is faster than ever. But you say the journalism mission has not changed. The basic challenge still is to make sense of reality and to share that reality with others. Can you expound on that a little bit? Journalism is really not that complicated. It's trying Thankfully. to find out. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank, lucky for us. The, the, the goal really is to, is to understand reality and then explain that reality to everybody else. It's not complicated, but it's very difficult to do well. And it takes uh, years and years of practice. You get better at it as you go. And there's so many, you talk about other forces that are, uh, there's so much involved now in being a reporter, um, not the way it used to be. Um, And how much of that is pushing us, works against us sometimes in trying to get the job done well. Yeah, the pace of news has always been fast. It's a competitive industry. So speed has always been one of our values that you have to be fast. There was, however, when I started, a news cycle. So you had to be fast to meet your deadline, and then you could take a breath. And also you had time to consider the news and and think about how do we want to present it. Now things happen so fast, you have to present the news on so many platforms all the time that there's less time to think about it. What, what's lost because of that? Because that struck me in your book. I mean, I remember... Those days you could t- actually like walk around the block before you had to write your story and then you could walk around the block before you had to file it. And what's lost now when we have to just kind of beat the clock all the time? I feel like if I go out and I'm with a bunch of reporters and they're all on their phone tweeting while someone's talking while we're interviewing a person, I feel like you're not really listening. And the pressure is that you have to, you have to deliver the news. So I, I understand that. But, but really if someone's talking, you have to listen. Yeah. Oh. You know, you talk about, so um, 
I, as I said, we kind of picking out some things from your book, um, which uh, I really enjoyed getting a chance to read some of it. I haven't read all of it yet. But you said uh, today, just as when I started, the most important work is not covering what everyone else can see, but exposing things that are hidden, either because of ignorance or because someone is trying to hide them. Um, I do think that some of that gets lost. People aren't always, that's not the mission sometimes. The mission is just to beat each other to the latest you know, who's going to have a press conference or who's going to do this or that instead of spending the time on the things that really do matter. So how do we do that in this day and age? Yeah, it starts with the verb cover that we talk about covering the news. So it's, we're reporting on things that happen. The value of journalism now, especially I think is, is what we call enterprise journalism, where you're seeing something that no one else is seeing, or you're exposing something that someone's trying to cover up. And that's harder because, and especially we, as we were talking about the speed, that it's hard to, to see things when you're on a moving train trying to file and editors are beating on you and your audience is responding to your tweets. And it's hard to um, step back and see something that other people don't see. I think we, had, we all felt maybe like we had more time years ago to be more proactive and less reactive. And now it feels like a very reactive business very competitive, very reactive, and, and, and chasing at the same things. Well, and there's so many platforms to consider now, too. Before it was, can you write a story for tomorrow? Yes. And, and I feel like um, the competition is healthy when we're trying to get our own stories. And the goal to me is always not to be the first one to report on what somebody is going to say that night. It's to do the story behind the scenes, to do what people don't know. And that it's a different kind of competition. It's not to be first on a piece of information that everybody's going to have. It's to be first on a piece of information that no one knows. I like you talked about the disconnect that journalists sometimes have with our audience and that that's not really new. We spend more time, I think, um, worrying about it and thinking about it now, but um, and I, like you said, we've long spent too much time covering things people don't care about and often from a point of view that's not theirs. Um, talk a little bit about that. How, how, how have you seen that play out? I think being from the Midwest and then working in Washington, that was an advantage to me. I, I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Chicago, but also in a small town in Wisconsin. And the perspective there is different. And when I came to Washington, uh, Things seem strange to me. They were really different. They weren't. They probably what I still expected. are. Right? They still are. <laughs> and in fact, I uh, I came from a fancy dinner one night, and I told my wife, "If I ever come back, and I think this is normal behavior, and you know, the way we do things in Washington, if I if I think that that's normal and good and healthy, then it's time for us to move." <laughs> so it ha- it hasn't happened. I still I still have to remind myself to to step back and look at it as. Uh, as something unusual and, and not normal. You spent 25 years there or more? 30, 30 going on 30. I, I told my wife, we lived in Mexico City. I was a correspondent in Latin America, and I, my wife's Mexican. I, we met there, and I told her, we'll go to Washington for two years and check it out, and that was there 30 years ago. She's still mad at me about yeah. that one. Does it seem more normal after 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> no, and you know, our, our we have two kids, and they're now in their 20s, and they have lived in the same house in the same neighborhood in Washington their entire lives. And I really encourage them to go to school somewhere outside of 
the East Coast, and so they both went to Chicago, and they they came back changed. They they were they were surprised at the how the values were different. And we you were talking. We, we both grew up in that area, yeah, outside of DC. Yeah. Yeah. We were, um, you know, I thought you made a good example of like the disconnect. That's been there is the, you know, when you, when you, when we cover city council meetings and we write about, um, government, um, cutting services or, you know, trying to bring down their, their budgets. And, and it's always from the perspective of, oh, what's lost in, from an institutional perspective and not from the perspective of readers are getting a tax cut or, you know, they're getting more money in their pockets. And so that some of our disconnect traditionally has just been sort of in the in the lens in which we frame the news and um, I think that's still a challenge today and, and maybe more of a challenge today since people are paying more attention to us and trying to make sure that we're doing the right things. When you're a photographer the first thing you have to decide is where are you going to stand to make the picture and it should be the same when you're going to write a story you know where do you stand and I always try to stand with the audience or the reader the person that that you want to reach especially in Washington, this happens, but it happens on all beats really where you, the longer you do it, the more you identify with the people that you cover. Right. And it happens to foreign correspondents, for example, where you start really reflecting the values of the place where you are instead of the people that you're writing for back home. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's good to rotate. It's good to change beats. And I felt like when I got a new beat, I went through this very steep learning curve that was difficult and scary because I was afraid I was going to make a mistake, but I was seeing things with fresh eyes. And for example, when I started covering the Pentagon, I had never been in the military. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't even know the ranks. So I, I made a little card that had all of the ranks on them. So if I'd be walking in the hall and I'd see a guy in a green uniform army and he had a little silver bird on his shoulder, Colonel, I could say, Look at, I'd look at my cheat sheet in my jacket and say, oh, hey, Colonel, and that's how I learned. So I saw things that they did that they had done forever and, and took for granted, but to me were new and interesting, and I could describe them in an interesting way. But after I had done it for five years, I, I was getting obsessed with things like you know capability and could we fight two wars at the same time and uh, nuclear throw weights and things that, I would go back and talk to my mom in Chicago and she'd be like, what? And it just wasn't interesting anymore. It was interesting to me. So then it was time to move. It was time then to get another Because then you thought you were just getting too sucked into right. that world. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting though because I think a lot the common wisdom is like cover your beat for two decades because then you're an insider. But you're saying maybe being an insider isn't a good thing after a certain amount of time. If you're really a good reporter, it's great to have more time on the beat. I just felt like I got so into it that I was, I covered transportation in Chicago, for example, and I, I was obsessing over uh, the fare box machines. And it got really interesting. And I was like, oh no, that's not good. Nobody else cares about that. It doesn't that. sound that interesting. <laughs> no, no, no. Even now it doesn't sound that interesting. So um, it's, uh, maybe it's a part of your personality that I, I was always, uh, and then I would get bored and it's like, oh, shiny thing. Uh, what's the new thing that I can go cover? So it, I think there are people that are that can do a beat for 20 years. My grandfather was a journalist and he said, there's always been a debate about should we be generalists or should we be specialists? And he, he believed in being a specialist and he grew up on a farm and was interested in agriculture as a topic. And he did that his whole career. And that was good uh, because he was an actual expert on it. And, uh, 
I was kind of a generalist, I guess. Well, you, you started out as a foreign correspondent, right? I co- started okay. covering night cops in Chicago. Okay. At the City News Bureau of Chicago. It was probably a busy beat. <laughs> it was a good beat. And it was for a kid from the suburbs, it was eye-opening. And one of the other things, Lane, you were asking about what's missing now. I was, uh, I was basically an apprentice reporter at City News. And that, that's how the system worked. That I didn't study journalism. I studied political science. Um, I didn't really know anything about journalism formally. So when I got there, they assigned me to a more senior reporter. And then I would just file the facts, basically. I didn't even write the stories. There was a rewrite who wrote the stories and would lead me through it and say, okay, you know, what did you see? What did the person say? Uh, just give me the information and then I'll write the story. And then I got to the position where I could write a story. And then they taught me how to edit a story and how to then work with other reporters. And bit by bit, over two years, I really learned the craft by doing it with other people. I like, um, when just in terms of sort of lessons that take away from your book, you know, you talk about how um, we can't be part of that pack, right, of journalists, and especially now there's there's lots of packs. Um, and I... I I, I really I really enjoyed this sentence you wrote because I see it all the time in young journalists. You said they have to see things for themselves in the real world because if you're reading something on a screen, you've already been beat. They talk about, um, I mean, that's one of those values that endures, that you would be better off um, talking to real people, being out in the world, not sitting in your office. I was very careful when I was an editor and a bureau chief to not reward people for being in the office, that a lot of times people think, well, I want the boss to see me because then he'll know that I'm working. And some bosses want Some bosses want that, but I, I was very clear, I hope, that uh, you got to get out there because there, there's no news in the office is what I said. I said, go out there, kill something, and drag its bloody carcass back here. <laughs> so on, on 9-11, uh, I, saw, I was in Washington. I saw the, on TV the first plane hit the tower. And then one of the, my colleagues was driving into work and her husband was driving her in and she and he called and said, a plane just hit the Pentagon. I said, no, it's the World Trade Center in New York. And he goes, no, I'm looking at it. We're on the bridge and I'm looking at it. So I ran out in the newsroom. Everybody was gone. They were all out going up to the Capitol, going to the State Department, going to the White House because there was still, we knew there was at least one other plane still circling. There was one woman, Jennifer Sargent, who was sitting at her desk, and she was in tears. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I I feel like I should be out there, but I'm afraid. I can't go. She was uh, big pregnant, like at least six months pregnant and noticeably pregnant. And she was worried about the baby, and she was worried about just physically getting around. I said, I need you here. We, we, have to, we have to be here to work the phones and, and coordinate the other reporters that are out there. So stay here. Okay. So I, I went back in my office. I came back five minutes later. She was gone. There was no one in the newsroom. She, she couldn't take it anymore. So she walked up to Capitol Hill. It was probably 15 blocks to find her member of Congress from Florida that she was supposed to cover and, and find out their reaction. Uh, at the same time, we had five interns college students who were there. They had started the day before. They were. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the Capitol building, getting their credentials with the program intern program manager and their parents started calling are you okay where are they and i was like i don't know exactly where they are but i'm sure they're fine um so but i was happy that proud that everyone was out there chasing the story so how do we avoid the pack when there's um you know mass shootings and white house pools and press conferences how do you how do you do that now how would what would you tell people how do you get out of that habit well, it's a leadership question. You, you can't expect the reporters to uh, break away if then they're going to be criticized for breaking away. And for, you know, every time, I, many times I got the call, well, the New York Times is saying this, or the Washington Post is saying this. You know, why don't we have that? And that was so infuriating because on the one hand, they would tell me, you know, go break your own story, try to scoop the competition, make them follow you. But then they couldn't help themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really, and I did it too. I, I, I remember standing over somebody during the Clinton impeachment, Monica Lewinsky stuff, and the Wall Street Journal had some development that at the time seemed earth-shaking. And uh, I was standing behind Mike Hedges. He was at the computer. And I kept saying, you got to write it. You got to match it. You got to have that. And he said, I don't, I don't have it. It's, I don't know that it's true. And I walked away like huffing and puffing. Turned out it wasn't true that the other, the competition got it wrong and I had been encouraging him to chase the wrong thing. So I, I, I always remember that, that he uh, saved me from myself and he did the right thing. So Yeah, it's easy to get caught up in that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That momentum. Um, Those are my least favorite assignments. Right. Being part of a pack of yes. people going in. And, and, and I love the idea of zigging when you should zag, but you also have to cover the mainstream stuff. Right. And that's a... A challenge. And I think it's a different responsibility. Well, do you, I mean, you've worked for a wire service a lot. Is it different for a wire service than a, like a local publication? Do you think in terms of what the responsibility is on these mass stories? We always kind of had a two-track system where we would have one per person or several people working the breaking story and then try to separately have people do sidebars on other angles or do the investigative part. And that in a lot of newsrooms is a luxury now that you, you don't have the people. And so you have to decide. And it, it, a lot depends on your, you know, what, what medium you're working in. That if you're, if you're working for CNN, the priority is getting the video real time now. And if you're working for the New York Times, it's more, what does this mean? And what's happening behind the scenes? Uh, if you're working for a, a small newspaper, what does it mean for our community? You know, that it's not global warming affecting something in India. It's down the street. So it, I guess it's, again, thinking about your audience. Mm -hmm. Who are you writing for? Who are you trying to help? And then what's the best way to do that? You talk about, and I think this is so true still today and always been true, I guess, but you say the most important news gathering tool is still the question, which 
just pause for a second to think about that. Like all of you guys who are out there um, still doing this job and trying to get out there, it is. It's a hugely powerful tool. But then, of course, you have to listen to the answer. Yeah. Um, and you and talk a little bit more about that because I do think some of the sometimes reporters get in their own way by, and Lane has talked about this a lot, forcing yourself to be still and be quiet and let people um, and just explore what you don't know and be comfortable with exploring what you don't know. Well, Lane's a good example of that because she gets people to talk about their most intimate and vulnerable feelings. And you can't do that unless they trust you and, and you're listening. They, they really don't want to hear your feelings about their feelings. They want you to hear what they think and how they feel. And so you have to know how to elicit that from them. It's, it's not like, not quite an interrogation, but it is a, there's a lot of psychology involved that you, you can't just have rote questions that you don't deviate from. And I've seen reporters just like go through a list of questions, but that means that you're not listening because a lot of times it's the pause or the facial expression. And also I feel like questions in person are so much better. And I know Lane does, does not do her work by email or by uh, text message, you know, how do you feel about this? And then they text you a smiley face emoji. Oh, she was happy. Right. right yeah. It, you, you, <laughs> can't you can't do, do it that way. And um, you can't really uh, listen to someone unless you're sitting face to face with them. And preferably, this is also a luxury maybe, is spending a lot of time with someone, even if you really only need a couple of things. I often would go into an interview with what I thought I needed. I, I, I met a... After the earthquake in Mexico City in 1985, I, I met a dad who had gone with his wife to the hospital. She was pregnant. He dropped her off at the hospital, went home. That night, the, or that morning, the, hotel, uh, the hospital collapsed. She died. Six days later, they found the baby alive in a bassinet, a metal bassinet, and she was tucked into the rubble, oh, a little oh corner, God. but she was okay, and... So I, I imagine this quote from the dad who was about my age and that he would say, well, it's a miracle. I lost my wife, but I have this baby. And so I kind of prompted him for that. And he's like, no, I just want my wife back. What am I going to do with a baby? I have a son that I can barely feed. How am I going to work and take care of the baby and my son? And that also was one of the first times I started crying in an interview because I, I felt like that could be me. It, it wasn't really a story, and I, I just felt so bad for him and for everyone in Mexico that, that lost family that day. And obviously, um, so I was just going to say, and obviously you, you could tell that story so much better by, by just letting him share his grief. Right. right? Well, and I think it's not just listening. I mean, to your point right there, it's caring, you know, and you can't fake caring. And I think there's just like I can't cover politics because I don't really care that much. Yeah. I think there's people who can't let themselves care enough to do human interest reporting. So putting yourself in that situation, I'm crying right now thinking about that. But you, connecting with people like that is, is a big part of, of being able to do human interest reporting, right? But did you feel that you get compassion fatigue that... After a while, you just can't do it anymore. You shouldn't be crying at the story I'm telling. This is a sad story, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> oh, I, I think the only time I felt like that really is in hurricanes. 
you know, when you're like the, the eighth, ninth, twelfth day in and everybody's house is destroyed and everybody's crying about what are they going to do. And usually when I was covering, I was living there too, you know, so it was always like survivor guilt is part of it too. Right. You know, I think that's when the fatigue comes in. I think the one-offs where you're sitting in someone's house, I, I you know, it's, it's exhausting, but it also doesn't ever stop making you care and connect, yeah. you know. But I think reporters do have to take care of themselves. And uh, I covered a lot of conflict for a while. That's all I was doing. Whenever anything bad happened, I had to go. And I'd like to go. I was young and uh, single at the time. and But a lot of the reporters were hurt by it. And there was a lot of drinking and um, people, you got to the point where you were, you needed to have more and more conflict to sort of spark your uh, feelings and it, it wasn't healthy. And so you, you needed to get away from it. And I, I, I spent a month in Somalia in 1992 and I came back and I, I just slept the whole time. I, I felt like something was wrong with me that I had caught a virus or something. I, I just couldn't, my emotions felt sunburned. I, I felt so sensitive to everything that I, I just wanted to be alone and asleep. And I mean, now we would look at that as PTSD, but then people didn't know, or it was just, oh, I'm exhausted and I'll sleep and I'll be better. And maybe another beer. When you had a part in your epilogue that was really touching too about the role of the editor in those situations. I think, do you, do you keep your people in those conflicts because they want to keep covering it to get some closure or adrenaline or whatever it is? Or do you insist they come home and get some rest and during the Gulf War, we had two, a reporter and a photographer who were riding in a Humvee that was blown up by an IED. And they were, they were shaken up but not physically injured. And I talked to their editor, and he didn't know what to do about them. And I said, you should order them home and say, you know, get on the next plane and come home. But I knew that they would refuse, and they would want to stay and they would stay. But I wanted them to have the out, that if they really needed to go, and they're really the only ones that can judge that, then they could say, well, my stupid editor is making me go home. I didn't want them to feel like, oh, I left too early, or I was a coward, or I didn't do my job. That was, that, that was always my driving thing, that I'm here because I'm doing my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm meant to do. We've talked a little bit here and there about um, different values. I mean, you, you, of course, emphasize fairness and accuracy, that even in this 24-hour news cycle, that even when we're going crazy and we're trying to one-up each other, um, that's something that shouldn't change, right? That we should impose um, more effort, I guess, to get it right. Do you, did you see that sort of fading away, or you, you see that as more of a struggle than before? In the book, I originally wrote it as a bunch of war stories, that I, I tell the stories with an implied meaning and a message. They're like, to me, they're like Aesop's fables that I tell a story about something that happened to me in journalism, but it, here's the lesson. And I shared it with friends and they said, it's kind of frozen in time. It's, it's sort of things that happened during the 80s and the 90s when I was a reporter and it, maybe it's not relevant to journalists today. And I said, but what about all the values and the lessons that are there? And they said, well, no, you have to be more explicit about them. So I went through and I, I looked at every line and I thought, well, what, what is the lesson that I intended people to take from this experience? And 
there were probably 200 things in the 250 page book. And then I boiled, tried to boil those down to about 18 lessons learned. And then I thought, well, I need an editor here. You can't have 18 things. So I, I tried to boil it down to three, which was speed, accuracy. And really the hard one was fairness. And that to me is the overarching, all encompassing umbrella value of what we do. And it's, it's the hardest one. It's the one that every story you look at and you think, oh, I could have been more fair. I should have said it this way, or I wasn't fair to that person, or I wasn't fair to the audience, or I wasn't fair to the issue that it's, it's never, it's never complete. It's never good enough. Um, that would be a good place to stop. But one more question on just sort of what, you know, we always thinking about why should people go into journalism today? And I feel like your, your book is sort of a love letter, right? <laughs> so obviously you must still want people to, you must think it's still a worthy profession and something that people should enjoy. Why? Why go into this business with so many challenges? I called the book Finding the News because that's what we do. We go out and find stories. But I felt like I also found myself and I found a mission and a passion in journalism that uh, was fun but also meaningful. So to me, it was a perfect career. It's not for everybody. But uh, if, if you get up in the morning and all you want to do is chase the news, I would do it. And even though there's a lot of uncertainty, you, you, it's not clear what job you'll have or what company you'll work for. The great thing about now is that if you're a young journalist, you'll probably work for a company that doesn't even exist now. And you might be the one who starts that company. Right. True. Okay. Thank you, Peter. If you have a question for Lane or want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Or find us on our Facebook group, which um, we're still trying to grow. So please share. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Allison Graves. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.